Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. This morning, we are blessed to have another 5 by 5 Sunday. If you have never been with us before on a 5 by 5 Sunday, what we do is we have five non-paid Christians give their best five-minute sermon. So in the past, we have just, uh, we've had church members come up and give their best five-minute sermon, five of them. There's a countdown clock behind them, five, four, and when it gets to zero, man, we hook them off stage. You'll hear a ding, ding, and the next person. But we are blessed today because it is our elders that will be teaching us today. We have six elders, so five of them are going to give their best five-minute message, and the last one is going to lead us in communion. I I got this uh, text uh, from someone worshiping with us online, and they Jeannie Christian, and she said, I love how our elders and leaders always use Scripture as a reference to reinforce their messages. We are indeed blessed. I watched first hour, and I'm going to watch again second hour. Uh, I, I just think she is right. She is right. Our elders use Scripture as a foundation, and we, are, we, we have a job to do for them today. As they come out to preach and teach, our job is to pray for them that they do rely and trust on Scripture, that the Scripture that they use, will, God will not allow it to go out and come back empty, but will accomplish his goal. Second, after praying for them, we need to take notes. Because there are five five-minute messages, I, I am assured that the Holy Spirit will speak through at least one of them to your heart to have a transformation God wants you to make in your own life, or maybe a challenge God wants you to accept from Scripture, or maybe a sin he wants you to repent of. But I just know that God is going to speak through one of our elders to you, so take notes so you can remember and meditate on the scripture they use later this week. And finally, this is an exciting, fun day, so you are allowed to cheer and praise God and give clapping encouragement to the speakers that come out and speak to us. So without further ado, would you please welcome Jeff Walls to the stage. You know, during the 6th century, much of Europe was suffering from the first plague. In fact, the conditions became so dire that Pope Gregory I, on February 16th, 600 AD, issued a decree that everybody should engage in unceasing prayer. And even to the point of when you hear somebody sneeze, you should utter the words, God bless you, as a prayer over that person so that they don't become sick with the plague. You know, you know, Jesus had a lot to say about blessings as well. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, he talked about blessings nine times. He actually used the word blessed nine times in the first nine verses. But what's interesting about this is that the term that, that Jesus would have used and the way that his audience would have understood it, is is a little bit different than the way that we understand it in the modern English translation today. In fact, once you understand what Jesus' meaning behind the word blessed is, it changes your perspective a bit on what he's actually trying to tell his audience. 
for example, let's, let's go ahead and look at verse uh, 7. And the, Jesus starts off his Sermon on the Mount with what we know as the Beatitudes. And in verse 7, it reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, we often look at this as, as a transactional passage, meaning that if we do this, then we will get this. If we do this, this will be our reward. So it's saying, blessed are the merciful. If we are merciful, then we will be shown mercy, and that'll be, that'll be a blessing. But that's not exactly the way that, that Jesus' audience would have understood it. In fact, the Greek term that Jesus would have used for blessed is makarios. Makarios actually means you are truly content. You are truly content. And so when we understand what makarios is meaning, then it changes the, the meaning of, of blessed a little bit. In fact, makarios, if you look at it, it's in the present tense. It's not a future blessing. It's something that you are right now. So if we go back to that verse that we were just looking at, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And we apply the makarios translation to that. You are truly content when you are merciful because you will be shown mercy. You are already content while you are being merciful. So you see how that kind of changes a little bit of how we understand things. Uh, let's take a look at uh, verse 4. Let's look at one other one really quickly. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When we take a look at how uh, Jesus' audience would have interpreted that, it reads this. You are truly content when you're mourned because you will be comforted. You know, time doesn't give us, uh, or we don't have enough time to go through all of them, so you can, you can look, on, look about that on your own when you get home. But um, I kind of like the Macario's translation, because when we talk about being, we talk about being blessed, uh, sometimes our English version and our culture leaves us a little bit empty. I mean, for example, Thanksgiving. We all sat down to a meal. We were blessed with all this food. We eat this food, and we're satisfied, right? But that satisfaction doesn't stay with us forever. Uh, three hours later, guess what? We're all getting hungry again. How can that be? <laughs> so that, that blessing doesn't last. But what Jesus says is, you can be truly content with me. At this point in time, his... Uh, his audience would have been thinking, okay, tell us how we can have this true contentment. Tell me how I can, can remain blessed in a culture that, that I'm living in. So Jesus goes through and he gives them examples. He tells them, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, love your neighbor. But he waits till one exact moment when he decides to reveal how they can be truly content. And that comes when he talks about worry. When he gets to the part about worry, Jesus tells them that, look, if you, if you want to be truly blessed, you can't worry because worry is the one thing that will steal your blessings. And so this is what Jesus said. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you will have everything that you need. So if we seek out Jesus first, instead of trying to do things our own way, and we try to follow his teachings then we will have that true contentment that we desire.
And so if you want peace, seek Jesus. If you want to be blessed, seek Jesus. And if you want true contentment in your life, seek Jesus. May God bless you, and may you be truly content. Genesis 1.28, God says, let us make mankind in our image. Genesis 15 through 22, we find conversations between God and Abraham concerning the covenant promise, the plea for Sodom, and the sacrifice. Esther engaged in several difficult conversations that led to saving many people. From the beginning, we find conversations that create, teach, and save There are two distinct definitions for the word conversation that we find in Scripture. I will focus mainly on the first today, but the second holds true as well. First one, conversation, usually an informal, private talk in which two or more people exchange thoughts, feelings, or ideas, or which information is given or discussed. Second one, conversation, mainly used in older texts, is one's manner of life, one's relations to community. And continuing in John 5, 6 through 15, Jesus healed and warned a man through a conversation. Jesus had multiple conversations with Peter, calling him in Luke 5, 1 through 11, teaching him in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, rebuking him in Matthew 16, 22 and 23, and empowering him in John 21, 15 through 17. In Acts 8, Philip had a conversation with an Ethiopian eunuch that led to his baptism. Using the above witnesses and examples, through faith, we should remove and ignore all the obstacles and pursue the conversation, trusting that Jesus will be with us every step of the way. Unity, maturity, healing, and discipling are best accomplished through face-to-face conversations. We have to take risks and ask the questions that lead to tears. We have to be bold and share what might lead to confusion or questions. We have to give praise more than anything else. We have to celebrate any and all improvements. We have to focus on the good, the strengths, the things that give value. Conversations lead to relationships. Relationships lead to decisions, and decisions lead to more conversations. When we talk, we show what is in our heart. When we show our heart, others show theirs. When hearts are vulnerable, God can take over. In Malachi 3:16 it says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. Philippians 1:27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now in my eighth year teaching at the middle school, the power of a conversation is something I have learned to be more true and more effective than any instructional routine or technique. Year after year, I learned that students desire to talk. They just need the opportunity and environment to do so. Each year when conversations are allowed to happen, students feel valued and thus feel valuing themselves and others. When they feel safe, they can focus on learning. 
When they feel listened to, they can better process their emotions and be comfortable enough to share what they're really thinking. When they know their life is precious, has a purpose, and is present, they can hear about the one who really gives them that value, and that is Jesus. I think this is also true when it comes to our work as Christians. Having conversations is the key to unlocking our true potential as a church. We can't build each other up without talking. We can't encourage without words. We can't correct, teach, or rebuke each other without speaking. When we foster the relationships and environments where we have our own voice and yet speak with one voice is when the church grows. Ephesians 4 talks about that unity. In verse 15 it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Our words are important, and speaking the word of God is very, empower, very powerful. But to engage others in the speaking and listening of God's words with the conversation, that is how we will make disciples that make disciples. Thank you. Thank you. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in numbers. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. The chapter's in my Bible, says instructions on worship. Paul's urging Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of of the truth. Paul's instructing Timothy that everyone needs to pray for all the leaders, whether you agree with them or they agree with you, or it's just total disagreement. It doesn't matter. You're to pray for them so that they can have what they believe is correct, but has to be in God's will so that we can live peacefully in quiet lives and godliness and holiness. So if you've been feeling under attack as a group, if we've been feeling under attack, is it because when we have this peacefulness, we aren't living holiness and godliness lives? In, chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Christ is having a conversation with his disciples, his followers. Christ teaches them, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
And then in Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me down the path of righteousness for thy name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou anointest my head with oil and my cup overrun, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two really good prayers that cover everything that Jesus was telling his disciples about, that Paul was telling Timothy about, praying for others. And then in Revelation 28, 18, at the very end, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book. And anyone who takes words away from the prophet, this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testified these things, and this is Jesus speaking, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Jesus Christ. And the grace of the Lord be with God's people. Amen. This church, this gathering, this group of bodies, the elders are firm believers in prayer. And that's what we're encouraging. That's what this conversation's about, is prayer. Engage in a life of prayer. Engage in your time of prayer. But pray for those who are over you in authority, that they can leave you alone so you can live peaceful lives in godliness and holiness. Thank you. No doubt about it, God is good. But I nearly missed it. I nearly missed seeing his goodness. Now, when Patty and I woke up on Saturday, March the 4th, we had no idea that our life as we knew it was about to change. We were both busy as normal. We were here helping with Sunshine Open House, and it was the upward end of season celebration too. Patty woke up with some back pain, which we didn't think too much of, until it got so bad in that afternoon that we ended up in the emergency room. Now, that week consisted of a couple more trips to the hospital. We had two doctor visits where one doctor ordered an MRI, and scheduled us to come back on Tuesday, March the 14th, for the results. By the time we went back on Tuesday to get the results, Patty was no longer walking at all. She was in a wheelchair. The doctor took a look at her images and says, I can't touch this. But he called a colleague of his who was a neurosurgeon, told him what was going on, and the doctor said to get her to Christ Hospital immediately. I'm going to admit her, and we're going to run some more tests. By 9 o'clock that Tuesday night, Patty was unable to feel anything from the waist down. Before 6 a.m. the next morning, the neurosurgeon walks in and says, you're going to surgery now. 
We have a 50-50 chance of you ever walking again, but your best chance is if we go now. When Patty came out of surgery and woke up, she was actually able to feel us touching her legs, which was a great sign, but also the start to a very long road to recovery. After seven weeks in the hospital, she was able to come home where her therapy continues. She is doing a lot better than she was, able to walk with the walker now, but we're still not quite where I know she wants to be. But one thing that we learned through all this is that we need to slow down. We see more when we slow down. When we walk or ride a bicycle through a neighborhood that we've driven through hundreds of times, we see little details that we've missed before. Slowing our pace helps to open our eyes. It's a good reminder of how important it is to slow down when we make decisions, when our schedules start to race out of control, or just when all the stress in our lives start to take away the tranquility that we once had. God is good at teaching us to use the brakes. Psalms 37.7 says, Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Psalms 127.2 says, It is useless to you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. God gives rest to his loved ones. And Psalms 116.7 says, Let my soul be at rest, for the Lord has been good to me. God's love is never in a different place than where we are. Our life and his love are inseparable. His never-ending I love yous, they surround us each and every day and are revealed in the part of his natural world that he created. But are we keeping our eyes and our hearts open to see them every day? Each of his I love yous are constant and they're precisely what we need when we need it. But it's up to us to slow down and look for them and to let them lift our spirits the way he intended them to. If we keep sprinting through life and through our days, we'll eventually get to a point where we stop and look back, but all that we're going to see is a blur. We'll realize we've missed too much of what was important and worried about too many things that weren't. God knows the rest helps us to retain our balance. He knows that slowing down encourages us to see opportunities that we're missing, to love people, to show kindness, to be the light of the world. Guys, slowing down is worth it. Buy the dozen roses. Stop at the park. Eat the cake. We have the opportunity to appreciate what's in front of us right now. This exact same moment, memory, and marvel is never going to come again. God offers us countless gifts each and every day that we hurry past and we often overlook. So I challenge you today to slow down Open your eyes wide. Guys, God has little miracles of his love planned for you. Our life is his highest priority, and we are his priceless possessions. He sees us, and he's hoping that we take the time to see the love in everything that he sends our way. Thank you. All right, I have a very important topic 
topic to talk to you about and very little time to do it. So I'm going to go pretty quick. So if you would, hang with me. Buckle up, buttercup. It's going to be a fast ride. Here we go. The topic I want to talk to you about today is forgiveness, and it's very important. And not only the forgiveness that you receive from God, but the forgiveness that you give. And I think maybe we're going to see that they're equally important. The two verses that I want us to look at is Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And we'll go ahead and read them. If you, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There's a lot there, a lot there to shake out. But let's put a little context behind it. Uh, Jesus just finished teaching us how to pray. Tim covered that. It's what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Part of that Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, Each translation has it a little different. But basically, what have we done there? We have said, God... I want you to use me as your model. Use me as your template in the exact same manner, the same style that I forgive others. That's how I want you to forgive me. Is that not what we said? Forgive us our sins, God, as we forgive others. Use me as your template. Forgive me in the same manner. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not quite sure if that's really how I want God to forgive me in the same manner that I forgive others. So he says again, Jesus builds on that. That's the part of the Lord's Prayer that he chose to build on. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So how you forgive others, the style in which you forgive others, whether you have a forgiving spirit, a forgiving heart, is very important. It's as important as the forgiveness that you receive from God. Jesus also says this in different words over in Matthew. Um, Peter says, how many times should I forgive? Seven. And Jesus says, no. Seventy times seven, which means an an infinite amount. Just keep on forgiving your brothers their sins against you. He then goes into the parable about the unmerciful or unforgiving servant who was forgiven. This servant was forgiven a huge debt by his master. And what does he do? He runs out and he is unforgiving of this person who owes him a small amount. The master hears about it, and Jesus says, after he hears about it, in Matthew 18, chapter 30, or verse 34, in anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus warns us, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Pretty much the same thing that he says on his Sermon on the Mount. How you forgive others is the way God will look at you and forgive you. Even those in the world of secular music understand how important forgiveness is. Don Henley, lead singer of the Eagles, he calls it the heart of the matter. In his song, he says, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter, but I think it's about forgiveness, forgiveness. And he even warns us later that if you keep carrying around that anger, holding that grudge, it'll eat you up inside. It's not just a Christian world who understands the importance of forgiving. We need to have a forgiving spirit, a forgiving heart. So what are the consequences? I'm not sure if Jesus is saying that if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters that your sins won't be forgiven and he's talking about your salvation. I'm not sure of that. But I do know that he thinks it's important enough to stress it after the Lord's Prayer. We need to be forgiven 
we need to give that same forgiveness. So what should we do? If we are encamped in the sinful behavior of consistently holding grudges and not wanting to forgive, we need to go to God. We need to confess that sin. We need to be repentant of it. And we need to ask God for that forgiveness that he is so willing to give. Just as we forgive, so will we be forgiven. Just as you have been forgiven unconditionally, we should forgive. It's an important, I think it's a very important topic sometimes, and maybe we we skip over that and we don't realize it. We don't get to heaven because of our works. We can't forgive and expect God to forgive us and let us into heaven. It's not our works, it's grace. But maybe this is an indicator of where we're at. Do we have the Holy Spirit? Have we truly accepted Christ? Do we truly believe in him enough to have this forgiving heart the same as his? Whatever grudges you hold them, get rid of them. Please forgive your brothers. Thank you. Good news is I'm not preaching a sermon like these guys. If you'll notice five, and I'm number six. Uh, But what we are going to do is we're going to have communion. And uh, I'm going to share some things with you that um, some of you may be able to resonate with this. Monday of this past week, I had a busy day at work. I ignored a fellow employee who came to me, apparently had a difficult weekend, and asked for some advice. I was so self-focused that I didn't share with him. I did not comfort him. Then I remembered the book of James. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. On Tuesday, I pinched my thumb uh, doing a home project, and I blurted out an expletive. I failed to hold my tongue. Then I remember what Jesus said in Matthew. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. On Wednesday, I got a call from a family member who is frequently asking for money. And uh, this time I said, well, I can't help you. Uh, I really, and I was lying, can't help you financially because I don't have the money. After a while, I was struggling with my decision, and I remembered Matthew said, If your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? So in everything you do, do what you would have them do to you. On Thursday, I got a call from a fellow church member who asked for my help to move a couch into a trailer for a widow who was moving. I used the excuse that my wife needed me to do something, and so I could not help. Then I remembered in James, religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look at orphans and widows in their distress. On Friday, a neighbor and I stood in our yards discussing the frequency of an emergency uh, ambulance that comes to a house down the street that houses disabled people. And I made a derogatory remark. Uh, It was, you know, if there's better supervision uh, of these disabled people, then uh, there might be fewer ambulance calls. Then 
I read in Proverbs. With their mouths, the godless destroy their neighbors. Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. On Saturday, I watched the movie displayed that displayed an actress in an evocative manner. I didn't turn away, but let my mind wander. Then in my devotional reading in Proverbs, I read, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. I was assigned to give the communion message today. So in preparation, I'm reading Matthew, the 26th chapter, in, the first, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, chapter. And then during my preparation, I thought about this past week and the sins that I had committed. And then I started thinking about the number of weeks where I have committed sin. And let's face it, I'm older than 99% of you in this room. So that's a lot of sins. Then I thought, what can I do? What can I do to remove one, just one, even maybe one of the little ones, those sins that I can take initiative to remove? And I decided I can't. So I read in Corinthians, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. Matthew, the 26th chapter, Jesus says, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. As we open our communion and take out the bread, let's think about these words. Let's think about the sins in our lives. Think about what power you have to remove any one of your sins and come to the realization as I have, there's nothing I can do except through Jesus. Let's partake of the bread. Dear Father, as we partake of this loaf, we remember what you have done for us. The pain and suffering that you did and allowed to take place with your physical body. And dear Father, that you died physically, but three days later, you arose again. And dear Father, through this, we remember that we will all die someday, unless Jesus comes back first. And dear Father, that we have the opportunity through you, because of the forgiveness of our sins, to rise and live eternally with you. Let's take the cup and partake. Dear Jesus, as we think about what you've done, not only your physical body, but your life's blood you allowed to flow from your body, 
Dear Father, that we recognize through your own words that your expectation, God's expectations of us is to live a perfect life, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Dear Father, none of us can look back at our lives and say we're perfect. None of us can remove any of our sins. And dear Father, we're so thankful for this blood that takes away not just one of our little sins, but takes away all of our sins, puts them on the back of your son, Jesus Christ. For this, we are so thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.